This is Jeff Deist, and you're listening to the Human Action Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to another Human Action Podcast. We're thrilled, pleased to have as our guest this week, Patrick Newman. Uh, he's a young man I'm sure many of you are already familiar with. He's been a summer fellow here at the Mises Institute. He is also the editor and in a, in a certain sense, ghostwriter of two new, meaning uh, posthumous Rothbard books. Uh, a couple a year or so back, uh, he edited the, the Progressive Era, which was based on notes and files left over by Murray Rothbard after he died, which is basically a book of history. And now he is the new editor of a book that is just coming out this month. It is the long-awaited fifth volume of Conceived in Liberty, which uh, was the final chapter in the book that Murray Rothbard had started and written uh, the first four volumes of in the 1970s. We thought that the fifth volume was lost forever because Murray had uh, basically delivered it into an old-fashioned recording device back in the 1970s, and those tapes had been lost. But Patrick was able to take his notes and handwriting and decipher them and somehow put together 200-odd pages of this book. So all that said, Patrick, uh, thanks so much and welcome. Well, thank you for having me on, Jeff. I'm uh, happy to talk about Mary Rothbard. Well, and for anybody who's in on the West Coast, uh, it, Patrick and I and several others will be at an event later this month in Los Angeles. It's our annual uh, – we're having a supporters meeting out at the uh, California Club, a beautiful private club in Los Angeles. Go to Mises.org slash events and join us if you can. I believe it's the weekend of October 26th, and we will have copies of the new book by Rothbard and edited by Patrick, the fifth volume of Conceived in Liberty. Uh, so first – I guess first, just tell us how difficult was that to put together for you? Uh, that – it was – very difficult to say the least. Uh, I was, you know, you look at the handwriting and it was, you're like, wow, it almost looked like something a founding father wrote as uh, a scrawl and you had things crossed out and he had little marginalia and he had all these arrows. And for the first day and a half, I think I got two sentences in when I started it. And that was the summer of 2018. And I was very close to throwing in the towel basically, and saying like, nope, I got to, you know, I can do this when I'm retired. Uh, you know, at this pace, it's going to take an eternity. And um, both basically, you know, the Mises Institute had had encouragement and I was able to persevere and I was able to get that, you know, the hang of it. It was really like learning a language. You learn each of the words and how he spells things. I mean, how he writes things and, oh, that G, you know, that's a G and how he would, you know, how he would just basically write and you, you got into his mind in a sense and you were able to figure out, oh, that's what those words mean, you know, that, that that's what those words are, et cetera. And by the end of it, I could read the handwriting uh, fluently. And so it took about, I want to say, six weeks in the summer of 2018. And it was, they were about six and a half hour days. Uh, you know, you're, you're clocking in 10, 12 hours of doing this. I mean, it was enjoyable. It was very stressful. I would go to sleep and you would see the, 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 the words in your head and you're like, it was, you're just surrounded by it. And, you know, I just knew to my, I told myself, if you want to do it, you got to get it done. And then you can go back and you can see, oh, you, you, you know, you get better at learning it, the handwriting, but it was, it was an experience. Uh, it was enjoyable, but it was, it was tough. Well, and for people who don't know, Patrick is a full-time professor with four courses every semester, not during the summer necessarily when he was working on this, but uh, he has a day job in addition. You know, one thing you said to me 
after all this was that as a result of having been through so many of Rothbard's uh, books, personal notes, personal papers, things we only have here in the archive at the Mises Institute, that you felt like you know him probably as well as anyone, except for maybe a few older people who had a personal relationship with him when he was still alive, Lou Rockwell, Joe Salerno, uh, David Gordon. But apart from that, you feel like you know the man or at least his work as well as anybody. Uh, yeah, I, I would say that. I mean, I, so I, I would say with confidence that I know Murray Rothbard, the person in his thought more than anyone who never knew Murray Rothbard when he was alive. Um, I've certainly, you know, you spend so much time in his archives, you read his correspondence, you read all of his books, you get immersed in it, and you get this, uh, in a sense, you get a, you, you know, you, de- you, you develop a biography in, in your head of the man. You know, you never knew this person, you never knew him personally, but you have tremendous respect for his, you know, for, for his, his, his struggle uh, to say the least, and you know everything he's he's done, and how he thought certain things, and you know all of his the twists and turns, and alliances, and just you know intellectual contributions, et cetera. Yeah, so I think uh, I would you know maybe not everything you know, but the overall system I would certainly know better. I would say than um, someone who you know who didn't know him personally, say like Joe Salerno or Lou Rockwell or David Gordon, uh, Ralph Rako, et cetera. Well, the title of our show today is Rothbard and his Critics, so let's get right into that. Maybe his first or one of his most famous critics was Arthur Burns himself, who was the chair of the econ department at Columbia University, where Rothbard studied for his PhD. He was also later on the Council of Economic Advisors and ultimately chairman of the Fed. as a young boy, Rothbard's family knew Arthur Burns. I guess they lived either close by or in the same building. Uh, and it came to pass that Arthur Burns would be one of the first uh, stumbling blocks for Murray in his professional life. So tell us the story of Murray's dissertation. Well, so Murray's dissertation uh, is called The Panic of 1819, uh, Reactions and Policies. It was officially published in, in the early 60s, I want to say 62. And it, uh, Rothbard defended it in 56. And what's funny is I actually was on a podcast, the Standard History podcast on the Jacksonian era uh, last year, is that, that it's a history book that is still very well cited by the history profession. Uh, so whenever you read something involving the Panic of 1819 or that time period, uh, there is a very good chance that that book will, will come up. Uh, and even into, you know, still today in 2019, there was recently an, another book on the Panic of 1819. But, you know, Rothbard's dissertation is still uh, very well respected. It shows that he uh, you could be a true historian, you know, look through the primary sources uh, and all of that and, and inform, you know, just sort of present new information. Uh, but the dissertation itself uh, was, you know, a source of controversy. Rothbard. Uh, what happened was, I believe, is that Rothbard had written a version of the Panic of 1819, its dissertation, and basically Burns wanted him to make all sorts of changes and et cetera that basically would have made the process very difficult. Rothbard didn't want to do that, and he more or less was kind of blocked until Burns left, uh, and then he was able to work under his, uh, his, his mentor that he still you know, he would always reference uh, very highly was Joseph Dorfman. Uh, so aside from Mises, uh, you know, he'd always say my greatest intellectual debt is to Mises. Uh, he always uh, had very high regard for Joseph Dorfman. But the Panic of 1819, you know, even you know, right from the get-go, uh, getting his dissertation 
uh, was a struggle at Columbia University. Well, it's interesting that Arthur Burns features so prominently in his story. And we were talking about off mic earlier. How many people do you think remember Arthur Burns' name today yeah. versus Rothbard's? Very, very little. Uh, when people remember Arthur Burns, they probably remember the Fed chairman who more or less uh, was very obsequious, you know, servile to Richard Nixon in the early 70s. You know, he was sort of pressured by Nixon to <laughs> inflate. Uh, to get him reelected and all of that, so he didn't. You know, his his later career, he didn't exactly come out. Uh, you know, is a sort of uh, impartial academic, I guess, or someone who could who could fight the power of the government. But yeah, he's he's a non-entity now. Uh, that's only for you know interested academics or um, someone interested in the history of the Federal Reserve. But Rothbard is definitely more famous than Arthur Burns uh, right now. <laughs> well, Arthur Burns is no Paul Volcker. We'll just leave yeah. it at that. Uh, so what's interesting here is that during the 1950s, in part, Murray Rothbard was supporting himself through the Volcker Fund, which was paying him to read some read books and research and write. And so actually, as early as 1952, before he was awarded his PhD, he got a head start on writing Man, Economy, and State, which was his first full-length uh, book, came out later in 62. And you made the point that uh, if he had had a full-time teaching job during this period, he may not have been able to write the book. Oh, yeah. So that that's something I've, um, you know, I've made that point where, uh, so interesting sort of history in terms of Rothbard, I believe he taught briefly, you know, in like the late 40s, uh, you know, or like sometime in the 40s, like as a side teacher. But in the 50s and 60s, when he was writing Man, Economy, and State, America's Great Depression, what has government done to our money? He, you know, the bulk of conceived in liberty. Uh, he was, you know, he was bouncing around between research grants, but he was he was not uh, teaching, and that was very helpful. His full time teaching job at Brooklyn Polytech, uh, I believe it started in '67, and uh, yeah, so being able to this is something that's uh, it's sort of very important just from the general perspective of um, uh, for for people out there is that having sort of the right you know, funding institutional connections is, is very important as an academic. And, and Rothbard started off with the Volcker Fund, which basically said, we value you f for your ideas. So first write this textbook of human action that, you know, project became Man, Economy and State. That story has been, uh, you know, been told. Uh, write, uh, you know, here are reviews of books. Some of those reviews have been published in a book, Strictly Confidential. We're working on trying to get more of them out. But basically, uh, the Volcker Fund said, hey, we value you for your ideas. Uh, read and write and tell us about it, basically. Uh, and that's extremely important to have sort of that type of environment uh, where you're able to uh, to do that. And uh, the yeah, the Volcker Fund was very uh, indispensable for Rothbard in his, in his early career. You know what I'm reminded of? The idea of tenure that there could be professors who simply just think and write articles and read books and do research wherever it takes them. It's almost like there should be uh, football players in college who just play football and don't attend class. You know, I mean, I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah, if only that would happen. That never happens anyway. Right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> the, the link between teaching and academic work is not necessarily coherent. Two different things. Yes, exactly. So the uh, and this is something that's it, it used to be. You know, back in the back in the old days, in the 1800s, in the early 1900s, uh, when you were at a college, you know, it was basically like a modern liberal arts college where you were expected to teach. 
in that idea was you were teaching the very high quality students and you know that you know most research aside from the voluntary contributions of nonprofits uh, in the modern day is funded through the government which explains you know very clearly that link for why so many academics of all stripes are always in favor of government intervention and in spending etc and why they say you know their research provides public you know external benefits and all of that nonsense it's because well if the government wasn't funding it you know no one else would or uh, much less of it would uh, you know would be funded by private sources and uh, it's increasingly becoming true where academics are more and more sort of in their own world of research and away from the students so there's an old saying that the the uh, the students don't want to learn and the teacher and the professors don't want to teach basically and it's yeah it's it's exactly true and now you have the third you know you have student athletes who are more or less just you know athletes i guess <laughs> uh, you know they don't even really attend class yeah so rothbard releases man economy and state in 1962 he spent maybe a decade almost writing it it included in his work the chapters that now comp- comprise power and market which are some of the more uh, radical chapters dealing with the potential privatization of police and courts and military defense. So again, on the heels of Arthur Burns, Rothbard finds himself up against another set of critics who don't want this more radical uh, uh, epilogue to the book included. And so von Nostrin, the original publishing house, does not permit that. Uh, yeah, so that that was a you know in, in sense that Rothbard he spent all this time on this project in sort of the most controversial aspect of the project, uh, the power and market, where you know Rothbard was basically coming out, he was fleshing out the uh, basics of his you know what was later you know famously known as you know anarcho capitalism, etc. Uh, that was deemed too controversial, so he basically had to be uh, shelved more or less until he could publish it. Uh, in 1970, I think he made some minor revisions, but I mean, and, and, and you know, a lot of that stuff on government intervention, et cetera, that uh, many uh, public choice scholars uh, sort of, you know, were, became famous for in the 60s. Rothbard, in many ways, when you you, know, you read his work, uh, and there are improvements on, you know, this, I, I find power and market uh, superior to the arguments of the public choice scholars, such as uh, Buchanan and Tolick, James Buchanan and Gordon Tolick. Uh, he, in many ways, like he, he, he beat him to the punch. Uh, in that book, but it was just unfortunate because he it got published in a decade late. And in the academic world, you know, people can, you know, that that that's a long time. But yeah, that was a you know that was another sort of setback where he spent all this time on this, and then you know, kind of the main punch or the the influence of the book, and you know, the the that got you know, it was deemed too controversial, so he couldn't he couldn't publish it. So that was sort of another setback he had to deal with. And was there a particular person involved in making this decision? I'm not sure offhand. Uh, so I believe it was uh, Frank Meyer who basically read oh. – there were some people who read the manuscript and it said, well, this is too controversial. So you know, advised basically uh, not to you – know, sort of basically said, well, you know, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be published. Uh, and that was – uh, Frank Meyer was sort of a conservative libertarian. And, you know, one of the things that bears uh, emphasizing uh, during this time period in the 50s and the 60s is that you had many free market people, uh, you know, Austrian travelers and not, who were very, uh, we would call them now, sort of aggressive foreign policy. So they were like, yeah, free market's good, but we also need to nuke the Soviets, kind of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we need government. 
you know, that 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 defense of uh, the police and the law, et cetera. And that was something that, you know, was another sort of factor Rothbard had to deal with, where not only was he advancing free markets, but he was in a sense by advancing free markets and things like law and police, et cetera. He was also uh, pushing for a non-interventionist foreign policy. And that uh, sort of alienated him from from many people who who strongly disagreed with him on that. One thing Rothbard talks about is he wanted man, economy, and state to be more accessible than human action, which Mises wrote for a more scholarly or academic audience. And do you think that this uh, made the book better? Do you think this lends itself to some of the criticisms of the book? And I also want you to touch on the uh, section on monopoly, which I think is still heralded by Austrians as an advancement uh, over Austrian theory at the time, or maybe even a correction of Mises, and derided by others uh, who, who think uh, antitrust legislation is legitimate. So, t- so talk about the book. Talk about Man, Economy, and State and some of the criticisms levied against it. Well, so, you know, Man, Economy, and State, you have it. It's, uh, it, it's one of those books where you either have people say that uh, the critics, sometimes you'd have critics say that, oh, he doesn't really add anything. This is Rothbard sort of libertarianizing or almost kind of dumbing down human action hmm. uh, or, you know, it's just uh, Rothbard and what Mises said in human action is uh, in many ways is different than what Rothbard said in Man, Economy and State. Which undeniably, in many uh, aspects, is is true uh, outside of the economics. Me, uh, Human Action was a book that was much more than sort of an economics treatise. It was, you know, delved into things like philosophy and uh, you know some legal theory, and you know went into uh, you know the various sorts of ethical systems or you know utilitarianism, and and you went into some historical episodes and so on, but. You know, a lot of people are just like, oh, you know, man, economy and state, you know, you don't you don't need to read it. When it came out, it really didn't have any sort of impact. And that was just because the profession didn't value it. And uh, the Austrian movement was more or less dead. Uh, I, I think Joe Salerno is, is exactly correct when he says that uh, the Austrian revival began with man, economy and state. It didn't begin at South Royalton in the early 70s. It began with Rothbard. And if Rothbard, you know, uh, got hit by a bus or, you know, he died in like the fifties or sixties, there wouldn't be Austrian economics, uh, at least in the, the state that it's known, uh, as today. And the book, you know, it's, it's a book that anyone, I, I, I almost don't value them as an Austrian economist, uh, if they haven't read the book and sort of appreciate what he's doing and understand the arguments that he's making, because in many ways it's uh, very step-by-step uh, elaboration of, of, of the economic theorems Mises is sort of elucidating and building upon in human action. And he's most famously known for the monopoly theory distinction where he says, oh, he came out with a monopoly theory that, you know, Mises said that you could have a monopoly price on the free market. And Rothbard said that, you know, you couldn't, um, you know, monopolies can't be established on the free market. And, uh, you know, you can get into some of the history where uh, it's been chronicled that you know Mises said that oh I agree with what Rothbard says depending on uh, the source or how it's phrased but Mises held Rothbard's theory very highly he held the book very highly uh, sometimes people will you know you bring up the his uh, Mises was a very harsh critic and you know he had a very uh, good review of the book in um, I want to say it was the Individualist uh, you know when it came out but 
so Rothbard, uh, you know, new individuals review. But, you know, one of the things uh, found recently and Joe Salerno has put the quote online is that Rothbard uh, Mises, you know, privately, he praised the book to some contemporaries. He said, oh, if you want to understand what I'm saying in human action, read Rothbard's Man, Economy and State. Uh, so, you know, it sometimes doesn't get, you know, love or you have some people say that, oh, it's just a restatement of what Mises says. You know, Rothbard adds nothing new. Uh, and then some people say, oh, it's, it's not a restatement of Mises. Like Rothbard, he adds all this, you know, the, 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 this, this other stuff. And that's not what Mises is saying, et cetera. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's easily, in my opinion, it's, it's, it's my, I would go and say it's, it's my favorite book <laughs> just in general. Uh, I, it's, it's influenced me more, uh, than any other book and it's, it's so indispensable and, and you can't, you can't consider yourself, in my opinion, a, an Austrian economist, let alone a free market economist without reading Man, Economy and State. Well, it's interesting. I think Mario Rizzo, who later went on to teach at NYU, I don't know when or what era he made this statement, but I think Mario Rizzo was one of the critics who said it was a rehash of human action that. Uh, r rather than breaking new ground or new scholarly treatise. Uh, let, let me read you the, real quick this quote for our listeners. This is Mises reviewing the book. And he says, this is an apocal contribution to the general science of human action, praxeology, and it's practically most important and up to now best elaborated part, economics. Henceforth, all essential studies in those branches of knowledge will have to take full account of the theories and criticisms expounded by Dr. Rothbard. So that's a, a nice criticism from or a critical review from Mises. Now, uh, before our, our listeners think we're too self-serving, we'll all have another quote later in the show from <laughs> Mises that's not as favorable towards Murray. Um, let's talk a little bit more about monopoly. Was that received to the extent it was received? Was that received as groundbreaking? Was that dismissed, the idea that monopolies could not exist on the free market? Uh, so, you know, it, it was received in the Austrian circles, you know, part of the issue is it's just the profession when it was reviewed in professional journals by regular mainstream economists, uh, the book, I mean, just completely fell flat and there was no real serious discussion of its, uh, of its arguments because it was just like, well, you know, this is totally old fashioned. There's no math and it's got this weird sort of libertarian stuff at the end. And that was that. Uh, in the Austrian movement, it was uh, received uh, fairly well. Kirzner, Israel Kirzner has had some sort of wrote some sort of critical remarks later. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but Mises's uh, second edition of Human Action, the the, the much maligned you know, the edition that it's it's very hard to find. Uh, when I was a PhD student, I had to go through like five interlibrary loan sources just to actually get a physical copy of the '62 edition, or excuse me, the '60 '63. Uh, in that he uh, Mises um, actually kind of made revisions in response to Rothbard's Man, Economy, and State. He held it that highly that that's kind of what he was going for. He even added a footnote on America's Great Depression, uh, and part of this was over the anarchy stuff. Some of this was on on some other things uh, you can we can touch on. But the you know the monopoly theory, a, a lot of people, even his critics, would say that that's his that's his strongest. Uh, it's held up well, at least for the most part, in the Austrian um, movement. Uh, one of my favorite empirical books in the Austrian uh, tradition, a great example of a microeconomic analysis uh, of Austrian economics, is a book by Dominic Armentano, uh, Antitrust in Monopoly, Anatomy of a Policy Failure. And he has this great, you know, he goes to all these Supreme Court cases and he, he basically uses Rothbardian monopoly theory to demolish each of them. He says that, well, 
you know, this is on the free market and uh, it's, it's a voluntary exchange and you can't separate a competitive price from the market price uh, independently using sort of the, the older monopoly theory. And also Rothbard's analysis of perfect competition is, uh, is a fantastic demolition job of the theory. Um, and that, you know, gets overlooked sometimes, but, uh, I mean, his monopoly theory is great because it ties in with the rest of the book. And if there was one chapter of man economy and state that could be standalone, you could almost like sell as a standalone, uh, you know, a little pamphlet, it would probably be monopoly and competition chapter 10. What's interesting to me is that as a lay person, not an economist, I find this book tougher than human action. I, I, I wonder anecdotally how if we could poll that, if people who aren't economists, and I think I've heard other people say that as well, that man economy and state is a bit of a slog, whereas human actions got some conceptually dense stuff and some fl not flowery language, but it's, you know, it's, it's a, a little prettier in some ways. It obviously doesn't contain any equations or charts or anything like that. So maybe it's just because I, I come at things from more of a literary perspective that that's easier. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I forget who said this, but there's two types of Austrians, those who read Human Action before Man, Economy, and State, and those who read Man, Economy, and State before Human Action. And I think you're right in that most economists will say that Man, Economy, and State is an easier read because it's clearer and that it just focuses straight on the economics. And if you're kind of familiar with the tools of the trade, so to speak, and graphs and supply and demand and just sort of more of the analytical um, – sort of focus like step-by-step step building it up. Mises' human action, I mean, is on everything. And so for those who are more of a philosophical or, you know, uh, historical background, I think they find that an easier read because they can, um, they, they can, they understand it better because he also touches on a lot of those topics. And that's something that, you know, I guess it's di different strokes for different folks. So, so to speak, I've found man economy and state, much, you know, much clearer, but that's because I'm an economist by training. I think one of the, I think with the most underappreciated aspect of Man, Economy, and State is that he's trying to basically spell out all of the economic theorems in Mises's human action. And uh, that's something that, you know, gets, uh, you know, underappreciated or people just say, oh, Rothbard's just synthesizing stuff or, you know, he's not adding anything new. And one, both of those are, are incorrect. He is adding uh, you know, much, you know, a lot of, a lot of new stuff, but you know, it really is for people who think human action, the thrust of human action, the, the, the methodology of human action, the epistemology of human action, just the overall procedure, the praxeological approach of Mises is different than the praxeological approach of Rothbard. I've said this before, I've said it again, and I'll continue to say it is that they're just wrong. You know, that, that it's, <laughs> you can get into that, but it, you know, they're, 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 they're clearly in the same tradition. But but apart from any distinctions between Mises and Rothbard on method, generally speaking, of course, method is an area where Austrians in general and Rothbard in particular are criticized pretty heavily, uh, praxeology, a prioriism. So in the same period, the 1950s, of course, he has he he I guess doubles down, if you want to call it, on Mises's praxeological approach in this book. Uh, but then he also has this great essay. Uh, which appeared in 1956 in the Southern Economic Journal called In Defense of Extreme A Prioriism. So talk about some of Rothbard's critics with respect to method. So it's interesting is Man, Economy, and State, unlike Mises' human action, Man, Economy, and State spends very little on method. You know, just the methodological procedure, the, you know, the 
base, you know, the, in terms of the method used by Rothbard in that book, as by Mises in the book, is deduction. And you start off with the fact that humans act, and you have some uh, empirical assumptions that are broadly empirical in the sense that they don't need to be tested, but they're just self-evident. Like there's a variety of resources, you know, in terms of you know entrepreneurial ability, uh, land, uh, labor, leisure as a consumer's good. Uh, et cetera. And then you basically go with the approach that if A, then B, and if B, then C, and so on. And Rothbard spends, I want to say, all of two paragraphs at the end of chapter one in an appendix on this. And then he goes off to the races, and that's the approach. And Austrians have been criticized for that by saying, oh, it's anti-scientific. It's not, uh, you're not testing anything. You're not really doing serious work because you're saying things are a priori and you don't need to test theoretical assumptions and so to speak. And uh, many Austrians, some Austrians more recently have have criticized Rothbard by saying that, well, he's actually doing something that Mises is not doing. It's that Mises apparently, uh, as I've sort of referenced, is that I guess uh, Mises was a terrible writer apparently because no one understood what he was doing uh, except, you know, much later on uh, in that, you know, Mises was much closer to, I guess, what uh, Fritz Machlup uh, was trying to argue in the Southern Economic Journal that Rothbard responded to in a comment uh, between a debate and him and another economist. Um, but you know that, that that's that's incorrect. They were they were basically using the same approach. They had differences in terms of how do you you know is it uh, how do you derive like the action axiom and things like that. But they were you know the praxeological approach is is very simple. You know you start off with self evident assumptions and then you make you know, you use the method of deduction to make conclusions about them. And then if the assumptions hold, then the theories hold and there's no need to test the theories and you can't even test them due to the differences uh, between the uh, social sciences and the natural sciences. Uh, that's the approach of Austrian economics. That's the theological approach that Mises used, that Rothbard used. And it is different than the neoclassical approach because they use unrealistic assumptions. And Austrians don't use those assumptions or they start, they could use them initially, but then they drop them off. Uh, that's why you hear about this, you know, the causal realist economics or just sort of this, this real world economics. But the, you know, it's kind of weird now and people saying, oh, Mises and Rothbard aren't saying the same thing. And while there are differences, they were very clearly in the same um, theoretical methodological framework. Well, what was helpful to me, again, I mentioned this article in defense of extreme a prioriism, we can link to it with this show, is uh, Rothbard has a paragraph about whether axioms are laws of thought or laws of reality. And he comes down on the, on the side of the ladder that they're laws of reality. So once you think of a law of reality, then you understand that we, at least at first, uh, perceive reality through our senses. And in, and in a way, that means that's uh, empirical. We use our senses to discover something. But as Murray points out, that's so far off from the positivist methods of which have now been applied to the social sciences so that when we, we use the term empiricism, uh, that, that's so far from what Mises meant, e even if there's an, a, a, an initial empirical element to it, that it's, it's actually correct to consider this a prioriism in the context of of economics and methods. So that was, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, it was something that clarified things for me and I hope I'm not uh, medicating things even more murky for our audience. Oh yeah, no, I think you're exactly correct on that in that Rothbard, I mean, in a sense, that's why he said in an essay uh, later on, he said it very clearly. I want to say it was breaking out of the Valrasian box 
Uh, he wrote it in the, uh, I want to say, 87 or something, um, where he said, you know, Austrian economics is actually sort of broadly empirical. You know, in a sense, it's, it's empirical understood in the, in, the, in the initial sense that, like you said, it's, uh, it's, it's law, based off sort of laws of reality and, you know, neoclassical economics or just other uh, economics is, uh, is not because it has all these unrealistic assumptions, uh, you know, snuck in, et cetera. And that was something Rothbard was big on. I mean, Rothbard thought, you know, and this is continued the tradition of Mises through Menger and Bamba Verk, that, you know, you're, you're trying to understand real world phenomenon, real world prices, real world exchange, uh, et cetera. And you are going to basically uh, have to use real world assumptions uh, and, and so on. So, yeah, that was an important point. I think, you know, a lot of people when discussing sort of the Mises's methodology and the controversy, they get very sort of stuck up on the action axiom uh, and not sort of the later approach. So people, oh, okay, how do you get these starting assumptions? And the more interesting question in my mind has not really been the assumptions itself, but how you actually use that. Um, and, you know, you can get into all sorts of stuff of criticisms by Friedman and other people, but, you know, the, the approach is, 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 is something that's highly criticized today, but it's extremely important. Uh, you, you know, it, it's, it's very fundamental to both Mises and Rothbard. Well, you bring up Milton Friedman. Talk about some of the criticisms of Rothbard by Milton Friedman. Obviously, uh, we don't want to debate uh, monetarism in full here, but uh, that was obviously a huge point of contention between the two. But uh, did they have a particular relationship and was there a particular uh, criticism by Friedman that stands out to you? Basically, you know, Friedman was uh, Friedman and Rothbard. They were, you know, free market economists in the fifties and in, you know, in the sixties. And Friedman, you know, became very famous. Uh, you know, later on, he won the Nobel Prize, etc. Uh, and you know, they initially had, I believe, a, a cordial relationship. Rothbard was actually Friedman offered Rothbard a postdoc at the University of Chicago, and Rothbard declined it. He wanted to work on America's Great Depression, uh, and that became the sort of major bone of contention between them, where uh, their analysis of the 1920s and 1930s in terms of monetary economics uh, is very different, you know, you know, pulls apart. Milton Friedman and Anna, Anna Schwartz, Monetary History of the United States, became uh, you know, sort of the standard analysis of the Great Depression. And once those two books came out in 1963, any any sort of uh, friendly relationship they had uh, basically evaporated. And there are some anecdotes of of uh, Friedman criticizing Rothbard's work early on in the in the 60s, the America's Great Depression. But uh, Rothbard afterwards uh, sort of always held Friedman as sort of like a the establishment libertarian who was kind of taking positions that were. Uh, not as hardcore as Rothbard uh, would have liked them to be. And since Friedman was this very big figurehead in the libertarian movement, uh, it became almost like a, well, even Milton Friedman said something. And this was, you know, on a much, you know, Friedman was definitely a free market economist. Uh, F.A. Hayek was not, uh, at least in terms of policy prescriptions. And you can get into the, you know, well, even Hayek said this. I mean, he's got like a tedious laundry list of interventions in the Constitution of Liberty. And that was something Rothbard you know, was was against uh, because he wanted to present the very hardcore, radical version of uh, you know economics, and Friedman was in a sense standing in the way. So, following his head-to-head -head, uh, combat with Milton Friedman, we get we then move into the 1970s, and he comes out with perhaps one of his most controversial books, *The Ethics of Liberty*. 
this book attempts to take, uh, make the normative case for laissez-faire and as a result, uh, blow up the, sort of the Mises and Henry Hazlitt rule utilitarianism that they had both promulgated. Uh, it has controversial chapters about things like evictionism and children's rights, about animal rights, uh, about all kinds of things. So let's talk about the ethics of liberty. Uh, yeah. So that was, um, one of his, uh, I, so I've, I've said, you know, this is, this isn't me coming up with this, you know, Rothbard had four major projects or sort of book projects in his life. First one, man, economy and state with power and market. Uh, then you had his conceived in liberty series. Then you had, uh, ethics of liberty. And then you had the, uh, his history of thought series that was published, uh, you know, right after he died in his ethics of liberty is Regarded by many as you know, very controversial uh, in the libertarian movement. A lot of people have sort of uh, poo-pooed it, um, but yeah, this was something where even you know he said that you know he disagreed with Mises and other utilitarian and utilitarians. Um, Rothbard was a natural rights uh, advocate, and he he thought that the best justification, or really the only justification for liberty libertarianism, uh, was sort of grounded, or at least had to be grounded, at least in some uh, natural rights. Uh, argument, um, as opposed to uh, other thinkers like um, like Mises and Hazlitt, who did not buy into the uh, natural rights uh, theories. And didn't Robert Nozick, I think already at Harvard by then, have a, a critique of ethics of liberty? Uh, yes. Yeah, so you know, many people had uh, critiques of the ethics of liberty. Uh, Nozick uh, criticized at least. So part of this went into the uh, anarcho-capitalism. Uh, that Rod argued in For New Liberty, as well as Ethics of Liberty, and how uh, he, you know, oh, can is this something that can the state will just emerge from these 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 private, uh, you know, protection agencies and so on? And yeah, that was another relationship where Rothbard and Nozick, um, you know, between Rothbard and Nozick, where initially started off friendly, but then they had very serious uh, intellectual disagreements uh, between them. And I, I mean, at the end of the day, I think a very important point. So one, people always make these arguments. This it bears uh, repeating as they say, like, oh, Rothbard is in favor of, you know, basically like selling your kids uh, into, you know, quasi slavery or, you know, all sorts of other things. And that was never really his moral positions. He was just saying that was sort of ethically or really ethically interpreted as legally permissible in a free market society. I think David Gordon said this where it, it's it's not necessarily like the ethics of liberty. It, it's really more of the political philosophy of liberty, where this is just what could be possible in a libertarian, you know, what is, you know, was permissible in a libertarian society, whether or not people follow that is true. And I mean, the big thing is that Rothbard in this, you know, as in many other um, works, but especially in ethics of liberty, is that Rothbard was a, um, you know, black and white type of uh, thinker. And that you had what was right and you had what was wrong. You knew what he, where he stood on a position. He wasn't someone who was going to be rel- – you know, vast majority of you know, all of his positions, he wasn't going to be murky or, or sort of flip-flop, et cetera. Uh, and you know, in the natural rights argument, this is where he comes down for liberty. Uh, you know, this is how you have to ground – what you have to ground libertarianism in. And that's you – know, a lot of people have brought up criticisms of the you know, Rothbard's approach and – Oh, you need other stuff. But I, I think the main, you know, the strongest argument in favor of natural rights, and this is something that um, has been brought up before uh, by authors such as, you know, Robert Higgs and, and by Murray Rothbard in egalitarianism as a revolt against nature, is that, 
you, you know, you, when you're not a uh, natural rights libertarian, you tend to uh, whiffle waffle, so to speak, and you t- sort of tend to compromise. And then it just becomes the well, if something works, and then you're not going to really hold on to the theory, but you're just going to look at what the latest sort of empirical uh, study purportedly shows or, or whatever. And um, it, it, it's something that uh, was really a major problem with the classical economists in the mid 1800s that Rothbard touches on. Um, but, it, you know, that's uh, you're not sort of a hardcore libertarian uh, without sort of adhering or at least the vast majority of libertarians are not. Uh, without adhering sort of to at least some natural rights uh, framework. Uh, and I would argue, you know, the natural rights framework Rothbard uses. And let's not forget Ayn Rand and Nathaniel Brandon, who had their own vicious critiques mm-hmm. of, of this book and of Rothbard generally and had a falling out with him. Uh, and, and Patrick, let's be fair. The, the fact that he had fallings out with Nozick and with the Randians and with the Freedmans and Anna Schwartz, you know, I'm sure he, he was a prickly guy. A lot of people will tell you that. And that while he was very sweet and kind and generous to young people, to uh, libertarian scholars, to all kinds of people in our circles, there was also, to be fair, a side of him that was, that was a bit intransigent. It was tough to deal with. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, I never knew the guy, but you can, you definitely can get that, uh, impression. I mean, he was someone who, when you have such a burning conviction of what you know is the truth and what you know is right and wrong and economics and history and, uh, philosophy, et cetera. Yeah, you absolutely can be, uh, and you know, can be tough to deal with or, or transient. And Rothbard was always what everyone would say is he was always very helpful, uh, to people who, you know, was, working in the paradigm he wanted to build, that Austro-Libertarian paradigm. But if you disagreed with him, I mean, he would go to battle, so to speak. And he would be he would be trenchant and, uh, you know, he, he could be severe in his criticisms because uh, there was sort of a, uh, a right or a wrong uh, that he wanted to, uh, to, to show. And that's something that I, you know, he, he, he definitely he definitely lived it. And there was a famous letter between him and um, I want to say Bob Kephart, where, you know, basically Rothbard said, oh, yeah, you know, I could have had a more successful professional career if I didn't pick so many fights and make so many enemies with guys like Friedman or or Nozick or criticize Herbert Hoover or things like that. He's like, I could have done that. I could have worked at Heritage or, you know, et cetera. I had, you know, I had a nice gig. I could have made more money. Uh, I could have been more uh, famous, et cetera. But he said, you know, why I did that is because uh, I think he paraphrased uh, Knut Vixell on this. He said, you know, no one else was doing it. <laughs> like I had to do it. You know, no one else was doing it. No one else was making these arguments. No one else was defending a purely free, you know, not a minarchist society, but a pur- purely free anarcho-capitalist society. No one else was criticizing Herbert Hoover. No one else was criticizing Milton Friedman for supporting policies, you know, not the, the total free market policy, et cetera. He's like, so no one else was doing it. Someone had to do it. And I just basically step up to the plate, so to speak. And, you know, it absolutely cost him uh, various sorts of friendships or allies and career success. But he was out for, you know, the truth. And that was something that he always was extremely uh, proud of and, you know, took a very high, uh, you know, moral stance on Here's something interesting, though. Hayek's career 
and reputation as an economist never suffered because he later in his career went off into political theory, ethics, law, legislation, etc. In a status direction, I might add. But Rothbard's career and reputation as an economist seems to have suffered because he, not so much later, but intertwined, went off on, into economic history, philosophy, theory, uh, political th- science, etc. So in an anarchist direction. So I think there's a little bit of a, of a disparate treatment here. Oh, absolutely. And uh, even in a sense, you know, Hayek is, is, was regarded and, and still is regarded as more important thinker than aside from Rothbard, someone like Mises. And I definitely don't think there's a coincidence that the year after Mises dies, uh, Hayek gets awarded the Nobel Prize. I think they are supposed to release the minutes of their decision for that. Like it was supposed to be like 60 or 50 years after the fact. So sometime this decade, you know, we'll get the full explanation of of at least what they choose to release, why Hayek was awarded the the, the prize to share with Gunnar Myrtle. Uh, but yeah, you know, Hayek, you know, he had many theories that free market thinkers uh, have have utilized. I mean, even you know Rothbard held many of his theories on capital, you know, capital theory and his stuff on competition, um, you know, economic coordination uh, very highly. Uh, but uh, you look at the uh, this is always my biggest criticism of constitutional liberty, just like stuff with John Stuart Mill. Uh, you know, you, you you look at the theory, but then how they apply the theory, and it's just like it becomes a mess. Like Hayek kind of like ends up supporting something quasi like Obamacare and the constitutional liberty. And even like the road to serfdom is not, uh, you know, he comes out in favor of various sorts of government regulation, et cetera, that, uh, you know, a free market person would be very much against. And it definitely explains things where if you have someone who kind of takes the, quote, safe position sometimes, uh, you know, not trying to be too harsh on Hayek here, it definitely adds to more, um, you know, fame and accolades uh, later. But it's definitely uh, an important difference between sort of I guess you could say the careers of Hayek and Rothbard. Hayek actually, in the late 70s, he wrote the foreword to a small little Rothbard pamphlet of papers. And he said that, you know, both of us are very influenced by Mises. And, you know, we've been carrying his theories in different directions that we would disagree with, that we might disagree with. And, you know, he said there's no one better than Rothbard, something like this, uh, to sort of explain many of Mises' theories uh, to an English-speaking audience. So it's sort of high praise. Uh, but, you know, it is, it is an important difference. It's that Rothbard took positions with other people in terms of theory, in terms of history that absolutely cost them professionally. And it's unfortunate to say, but it's the truth. Well, and I think part of it is going drifting towards anarchism and anarcho-capitalism. I just think that that's an uh, unpopular perspective in academia. And and as I said earlier, you know, Hayek got patted on the back <laughs> and ultimately got a Nobel after moving in a status direction. Let's not forget, constitutional liberty was later, sixteen years later, than Road to Serfdom. So he more than doubled down on some of his big government ideas. Uh, but it also cost Murray. A little bit with Mises himself in in uh, Guido Holzman's biography of Mises, he has this quote here where he's talking about uh, learning that some of his acolytes or adherents were becoming anarchists, people like Ralph Rako, for example. And so he talks about Mises. He says in a private letter, among the things which are really disturbing is the case of Murray Rothbard. And he's talking about him being uh, an anarchist. It's sad to see a brilliant mind like his go to pot that way. <laughs> so. 
So Mises himself had some criticisms of Rothbard in his in his uh, 60s and early 70s period, the the formers. So um, you know, I think I think fairness requires us to point that out. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a it's a valid point. I think I mentioned uh, part is somewhat similar, you know, earlier where you know Mises. If you look at the difference between at least some of the changes in the third edition with the first edition, it's really the second edition and the first edition. But uh, as far as I'm aware, there's not a single person who has published the uh, the second edition aside from its original print, uh, the famous you know mangling of a masterpiece by by Yale, etc. You know, he you, you look at some of his. I mean, Mises comes out for things like the draft. He he takes a position where some people have brought this up, where you know Rothbard thought that is true. Rothbard thought the government was evil. Mises, in a sense, thought the government was good because it allowed for the market, like that basic minarchist government. I mean, they both thought it was coercive and it led to all sorts of problems. But you know, Mises never bought into any of the. As far as I think most anyone's aware, he never bought into any of the anarchist or private protection, you know, uh, private police protection and everything. And, you know, people have always brought that up by saying, oh, Rothbard, you know, just something like, oh, Rothbard, he can't be, you know, a true libertarian, you know, the immigration or something like that later in his life. But you're like, yeah, OK, but Mises, you know, you look at some of his policy, uh, or at least positions later on in his life, you mentioned things like the draft or military conscription. And then you look at like Hayek and you're like, well, you know, like, well, however, you know, right or wrong, someone changes their position. It's, it's not like, you know, people can often be unfair to Rothbard at that, um, and they don't necessarily give him the credit of really keeping alive that sort of non-interventionist uh, strand of libertarianism uh, in free market economics. And that still is an important distinction. You know, you have many free market think tanks, et cetera, writers who uh, they can be quite bellicose when it comes to foreign policy and war and things like that, that, you know, Rothbard uh, in theory and history was just flatly against. I'd like to move forward and throw out some names, some current names, and just a little bit about the subject, and and just give us some brief thoughts on each name. These are all Rothbard critics, most of whom are still alive. So just just do a bit of a round robin here with me. Let's start with the amazing, still alive, Israel Kirzner, who is alive and well in New York and still, a, to my knowledge, a practicing rabbi. He uh, doesn't travel much. We've invited him to some, some events, but... Uh, Kirzner had some gentle or gentlemanly criticisms of Rothbard in the area of price theory, for example, and, and really identified himself as having developed a different strand uh, of, of Misesian economics from Rothbard, a wholly different strand. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so Israel Kirzner, definitely someone, uh, if you are interested in Austrian economics, you, ha- you, know, you, you, you should read, you, you, know, you have to read uh, his works, Economic Point of View. Market theory and the price system, competition and entrepreneurship, uh, because he was someone who was very influenced by Mises, uh, and he you know tries to develop. So Rothbard, you know, went concentrated on you know all aspects of the Mises' thought. Kirzner's you know famously known for his uh, you know the just sort of on entrepreneurship and the, you know alertness and things like that. And many people have argued you know that's sort of the Misesian entrepreneur, and Kirzner is the best student of, of Mises and all of this stuff because he went sort of the scholarly route. He went to NYU, you know, he studied under Mises and then he he taught at NYU, et cetera. Um, you know, Kirzner, if you look at like market theory and the price system, his, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely have 
you know, Austrian elements in, you know, very, you know, many good Austrian elements, I might add, but it was still grounded in the general neoclassical uh, price theory in that there's not a whole lot of difference between, say, that book and a standard neoclassical microeconomic book in Rothbard's uh, versus Rothbard's Man Economy State. Um, and, you know, Kirzner had, you know, criticisms of Rothbard and, and sometimes in private letters as well as uh, in public, you know, in interviews, he said Rothbard was too focused on uh, libertarianism and sort of got sidetracked, et cetera. I mean, they were very important um, colleagues. I know Rothbard, you know, held him in high regard. He, he criticized his theories, uh, his entrepreneurship theories. I think Rothbard is, is correct in his criticism uh, of Kirzner. I think um, sometimes people uh, in, in various circles, you might bring up Kirzner is sort of a better economist than Rothbard. Uh, I, I don't believe that's true. Uh, certainly, at least in Misesian, uh, you know, economics, Austrian economics. But you know, I would argue, you know, just in, in general, uh, is that you know, Rothbard wrote on so much more, and I, I think his analysis is is much more uh, penetrating and full of insights. And many things that sort of Kirzner wrote about later, Rothbard beat him to the punch in Man, Economy, and State. Uh, so, very important economist. He criticized Rothbard. Uh, you know, Rothbard criticized him back. I, I think Rothbard's, uh, you know, in the in the right. How about the late Leland Yeager, who died just a few years ago, and he was a, a finished his career here at Auburn, uh, and he was more of a, he, he wouldn't have turned himself an Austrian, but he had some specific criticisms of Rothbard. Uh, yeah, so Yeager, um, you know, their relationship actually was long, you know, began in the fifties, I believe. Uh, Rothbard, his. Uh, his famous, like the search for you know 100% gold dollar, that was in a book by Leland Yeager. Uh, Leland Yeager was a um, you know, monetary disequilibrium theorist, I guess is you know how you would describe it. And you know he criticized uh, Rothbard's um, monetary theory. He was also prominent criticism in sort of the calculation debate, saying that you know Mises and Hayek, uh, as Kirchner said, were not really saying anything substantively different. Uh, at least in their arguments, uh, in Rothbard as well as others like Joe Salerno um, and, and so on, made the argument that they were saying something differently, or at least the uh, the Hayek in um, the use of knowledge in society is is sort of very neoclassical. Uh, whether he's speaking to that audience is a different question entirely. Um, but yeah, so Jaeger and Rothbard uh, went at it. You know, b- before um, it, it deals with a lot of the criticism of or the the discussion that. You know how, and this is something that you know someone like Brian Kaplan has touched on. How unique is Austrian economics? How different is it from just say uh, free market Chicago uh, school economics, etc.? And uh, yeah, you know they had their they had their disagreements. Um, again, I tend to side you know with with Rothbard on this. I think that you know his monetary theory is uh, you know certainly. Uh, co- correct in terms of the business cycle theory and as well as just the whole uh, mechanics of it. But that, that was another prominent relationship Rothbard had with someone most of his life, and, and, and they disagreed on things. They agreed on many things, but they also disagreed on things. How about Larry White and George Selgin, the former at GMU? They're both free banking advocates, and obviously they sparred with Rothbard over you know free banking, but money uh, monetary issues in general. Mm-hmm. Well, so as a, uh, as a as a caveat, Larry White was my dissertation advisor. Uh, he you know so I, I wrote very Rothbardian uh, papers under him, and he was always very gracious 
um, in, in terms of letting, you know, allowing me to write those. And, uh, he provided very helpful comments and things like that, but they were, they were also very noted, uh, critics of, of Rothbard. And this became particularly in the, uh, in the eighties and nineties where they had, um, various disagreements on, uh, the theory of free banking, as well as the history Rothbard, uh, initially supported, uh, Larry White's analysis of Scotland in the mystery of banking. Then later on in the Review of Austrian Economics in the 80s, that was the old name for the Quarterly Journal. Uh, sort of, you know, very seriously criticized uh, White's, uh, you know, his, his theory. Uh, they were, you know, that's another important, basically, distinction or sort of schism. There were many uh, splits in the in the 80s and things like uh, monetary economics method. You get into things like the hermeneutical debate, you get into the calculation debate, et cetera. And this is, uh, I know Joe Salerno has made this argument of, you know, these things have been in many ways building since the 70s and the 60s. You've had these separate strands of Austrian economics. It's just that once the movement, so to speak, became big enough uh, by the early 80s, you had this, uh, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, these these differences, uh, these doctrinal disputes to use a Kersnerian phrase, I remember he, he gave he used that in several uh, presentations. I went, uh, listened to him on. I, I always I always like that um, that 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 phrase. Uh, you know that those became more uh, more apparent. And White and Selgin, um, you know, Rothbard sort of criticized them as sort of having almost a, a a Keynesian or what would be described as a new Keynesian approach, where you use the theory of sticky prices and there's maintaining a nominal spending stream, and this gets into you know, discussion over Austrian business cycle theory and the appropriate response uh, after recessions and things like that. But, you know, it's an important difference. And that was uh, definitely a distinction between Rothbard and other Austrian economists. Now, how about Jason Brennan, philosophy professor at Georgetown? I, I, if I recall reading one time where not only did he think uh, Rothbard wasn't a good economist, but he, something like, he didn't like the way he lived his life. Or something along those lines. So, what do you know about Jason Brennan's criticisms of Rothbard? Uh, well, I think it relates to the ethics of liberty, as well as just the the Austrian um, some of the stuff relating to man, economy, and state. But you know, Jason Jason Brennan is a philosopher. Uh, I'm not as well versed in philosophy as I am in economics and history. Uh, I can you know go through sort of some of the basics, but it it relates to. Uh, various comments made, I believe, on uh, Bleeding Heart Libertarians, um, you know, that website and the, you know, sort of the criticism. I think it's apparent sort of what, you know, the, the Brennan comments as well as many other comments in, in many Austrian, in not just in Austrian circles, but in sort of various free market circles broadly conceived is that Rothbard is not um, held in high regard. Uh, by uh, many people there, he's not sort of seen as one of the fundamental free market thinkers uh, of the 20th century. And this is partially because Rothbard had many very uh, important uh, theoretical as well as personal disagreements with uh, these people uh, or sort of older people. And sort of you have these battles continuing onwards. Um, but I don't think those are uh, I, I think part, almost part of it is, is 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 blowing smoke, or you're you're just trying to get people mad. I, I believe I remember what you were referring to, and it was uh, it was almost sort of shocked when you said that. Oh, you know, not a good philosopher or not a good uh, economist, etc. And it's just you know, one, it's uh, you know, there's an old saying: if you if you strike at a king, you have to kill him uh, because if you're taking shots at people, you know, you better be prepared to back it up in terms of both sort of what you've what you've done 
and as, as well as uh, kind of the arguments that you make. And it's I think it's another example of, of I think what Joe Salerno has called the the Rothbard haters. I think it's you know it's a, it's a new it's a new cottage industry. Instead of figuring out what Hayek or Mises said, you now just kind of have it's related. You have people you know hating on Rothbard, so to speak. Well, we're almost out of time. Let's finish with Brian Kaplan, also at GMU. He wrote, among other things, a famous essay, Why I'm Not an Austrian Economist, where he takes to task the Austrian business cycle theory as facile, I guess, and also suggests, well, wouldn't businessmen figure this out over time? And if I, if I recall correctly, he does single out Rothbard at one or two points in that essay. Oh, yeah. So the, uh, the Why I'm Not an Austrian Economist, that's a basically an online version. I, I want to say Brian Kaplan might have one of the earliest websites in the history of the internet, at least if you look at the old old version of it, you can see that posted up. It's really, really fascinating. Uh, that was, uh, I believe it was published in the uh, Southern Economic Journal. It's called the Austrian Search for Realistic Foundations. And Kaplan makes the point where he says, you know, he takes the position, you know, they have these various splits in sort of Austrian, um, the, the Austrian school of economics broadly conceived. You have the people who say Mises and Hayek were closer together then Rothbard. Then you have people who say Mises and Rothbard were closer together and Hayek was better. Um, that's sort of like a Caldwell position, Bruce Caldwell position. And then you have other people who say Mises and Hayek uh, were closer together and, and they were better. You know, that's like the Mises Institute position. And, you know, Kaplan makes the argument, he says that, you know, Mises, he thinks they're wrong, but he thinks that Mises and Rothbard are working in the same paradigm, et cetera. And he brings in things, you know, from the basics of like indifference curve, uh, curves are like probability to the business cycle. He's got that very famous um, comment, you know, you critique, you mentioned, that, well, why don't just people uh, basically learn that, you know, when they borrow, it's going to, um, you know, it's going to cause an Austrian business cycle theory. Uh, or it's not going, you know, they're just going to be able to anticipate it. And, you know, this gets into the, well, you know, they're trying to make profits. So they take the bait and they think they can invest in these projects and they'll be able to get out in time before other people do. And Mises actually made some similar points in the revised edition of, of Human Action, but it's not really like it doesn't really criticize uh, as well as Lachman, I believe. It doesn't really like it's not a fundamental criticism of Austrian business cycle theory. Uh, it's almost similar to like criticism. Oh, why does consumption increase? It's it's somewhat of like a um, an, you know almost almost like a I have tremendous respect for Brian Kaplan. I'm not you know attributing this to him, but it's it's. Almost like people bring this argument up and it's like, oh, that just demolishes the theory. And it's like, actually, no, uh, you have to, uh, you know, there, it still holds. You just have to understand it better. It's almost people bring up almost like a childish argument on, no, why don't people just uh, anticipate it? Like, well, you know, if I was the king entrepreneur of the world, then like everything I would do would be great kind of. And you're like, well, you know, it's actually not <laughs> uh, how entrepreneurs behave. So, you know, that's an important criticism of Rothbard that Kaplan um uh, paper, and I, I highly recommend uh, everyone who's hasn't read it to read it. Well, we'll finish on that note, and I will add, Brian Kaplan actually attended an early Mises U. This must have been late '80s, I'm going to guess, when Murray Rothbard was still alive, and apparently spent quite a bit of time with him, and benefited tremendously from that time. So I think his criticisms are in in the gentlemanly sphere. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, our guest is Patrick Newman. We will put a link to his bio with this uh, show. We will put a link to his new book, Murray Rothbard's new book, Conceived at Liberty, which will be available for purchase soon. We'll put a link to our upcoming event in Los Angeles in about two weeks. 
which you should attend if you're uh, within driving or flying distance. And uh, finally, uh, we will put up a link to this uh, really intriguing little six-page article in defense of extreme a prioriism, because if you struggle with that, those kinds of concepts as I do, you'll find it very helpful. So, Patrick, all that said, thanks a million for your time, buddy. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jeff. I appreciate you for having me on. The Human Action Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and on Mises.org. Subscribe to get new episodes every week and find more content like this on Mises.org.